0: So I'm, uh, I'm obviously not Tom, and uh, some of you probably need to tap your neighbor and tell him I'm not Kurt Miller either. Uh, I'm Matt Roskin. I have the distinct privilege of being the youth pastor at Riverstone. So, <laughs> thanks. So uh, what that means is I get to work with our sixth through 12th graders, and uh, it's been a real privilege. Alyssa and I have been here uh, since October of 19, and then we came on staff a little more than a year ago. So uh, we're extremely grateful to be here. I'm extre- extremely grateful to be with you guys today. And so rather than tell you a little bit more about myself, you can kind of learn about me through the message, and uh, we'll just kind of we'll get moving. So uh, like I said, I am, I am the youth pastor here. Uh, I've been uh, shepherding that for a little while now, and I've learned a lot since I started uh, I've learned a lot about 6th through 12th graders, more than I did in my previous 27 years. I've learned in this past year. And so one of the things I have picked up on very quickly uh, is anytime I have to shut fun down and, well, let me hold on. Anytime I have to shut fun down in the youth ministry, the first question I get asked is why? Hey, you can't, you can't bring that knife to youth group. Why? Uh, hey, you can't drive around in your car in the parking lot while youth's going on. Why? Like, it's just, it's the first instinct with them. And so something really funny I have noticed is that our kids have this weird love and affinity for our roof. Anytime they wanna do anything, they want to do it on the roof. Now, let me, let me go ahead and preface this. I've never let them on the roof, okay? So, you know, don't send Tom any emails or anything like that. That's not me. Um, but anytime we do an Instagram post, there's a picture they wanna take, there's a video they wanna shoot, they always ask to go on the roof. And so this actually played out this week. So uh, context, I fasted this past Tuesday. No big deal, but I fasted, okay? And so going into Wednesday, I knew I had New York strip that I'd already grilled waiting on me. So I was pretty excited. Like I was going out for breakfast Wednesday morning and I thought about waking up early that way I could have that New York strip. Like I was really looking forward to this. So lunch finally comes around and uh, I'm eating and I run into an appointment I have. And so I, I, put, the, I put the steak down and I go and I, I, I do what I need to for the next hour or so. And so uh, I come out, I'm getting ready to go reheat my food, but I get into a conversation with Alyssa and Savannah and MJ and I put my food down on the conference table in our office space. I don't think anything of it. I give it like a minute or two and I look over and Tom Tanner is taking a bite of my steak. And so listen, I'm cool, like, you know, Tom's been trying to mess with me lately, like he's been making jokes here and there, he's just poking a little bit, and I like it, but honestly it is very awkward for me when the elderly start, you know, giving me a hard time. And so I look over, and I don't think anything of this. I think, okay, this is Tom, he's got a few quirks. You know, and he gets really into things. He, he puts the hand on the face and he does this. He's got the different, he's got all these different things. But I, I really, I'm like, okay, a bite or two, I can live with that. Well, I come back 10 minutes later and I had eight ounces of steak on my plate and every bit of it was gone. This joker did not just eat a bite or two. He ate the entire steak and did not say a word to me. I was like, okay, Tom, like if that's, if that's the game you wanna play. And so uh, I'm pretty shocked by this. Like, that's a bold move. I've never done anything like that. And so some of our youth are actually in the office that day, and I go and vent to them. <laughs> I'm like, who does this? And they're like, you know how we should get them? Because I've got a few ideas. I've got a few few things that I, I'm planning on rolling out, and maybe you guys will hear about those. Um, but they're like, we should put his office on the roof. I'm like, man, you know, you guys have been watching a lot of Ferris Bueller. Like, what? where is this coming from? And I'm like, logistically, I just don't think you're thinking through this. We have a very small ladder to get things through. Like, we would have to rent a crane. And so naturally, my, I, it's a no. Like, it's a hard no. Like, I'm not even entertaining this. What happens? Why? And so today, as we talk about evangelism and outreach, I want to start with the bigger question of why, because more often than not, even though we're adults, we need to be persuaded too, right? And so if you would, open your Bibles with me to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So we're gonna pray real quick, and then we're gonna gonna dive in. God, I thank you for this time. I thank you that your spirit's in this place. I pray that you would move today, and you would move in hearts, and you would give them your heart for evangelism and outreach. You would give them your heart and your purpose behind it. And I pray that uh, your words would be spoken here today, audibly or inaudibly. And so we pray that in your name, amen. So let's dive in and then we'll talk. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So let's break this down a little bit. So Matthew's the first book in our New Testament and is strategically placed there because the entire brevity of Matthew's writing, he has been painting a particular portrait of Jesus, Mark, Luke, and John all pay, paint a, a portrait, but it is not the exact same as Matthew. And the portrait that Matthew paints in his gospel is that has a very Jewish flavor. So he is the bridge between the Old Testament, written 400 plus years prior to the New Testament. He is that bridge to the Jewish people. So his gospel is placed first. And while he's promoting this idea of this Jewish flavor within this text, he he alludes and directly points to something all throughout this book. He points to the fact that Jesus is the new and better Moses that was promised. And so he does this in a few ways. One of the ways he does this is just in the structure of his book. See, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Well, Jesus' teachings in Matthew are broken down into five sections, okay? And so Matthew brings this theme of Moses, who was considered the teacher of Israel, to the end of his book. If we look here, there's a heavy emphasis on teaching, but there's also an emphasis on discipleship. And so within this, Matthew is alluding, Jesus is the greater Moses. And he does this and he promotes the idea of teaching just like Moses taught. And so, what we need to realize when we see the word disciple in this text, discipleship, it literally it requires if I'm going to disciple somebody, I cannot keep them at arm's length. It requires intimacy. I have to be in relationship with them. In order for the information to be exchanged the way that a discipleship kind of method works, I have to be very close. Information passes from the teacher to the student, and it's not something done by great distance. It's something done in close proximity. So that's what he's talking about here. So with that being said, what I'm about to talk about, it, it has purpose. I think it gets very close to God's goal, but it is not God's heart for evangelism and outreach. It does not capture the entire essence of it. And so when we look, and I'm not knocking this at all, I really do think it, it is it is for good. Street preaching, for instance. Street preaching is great. We need to proclaim the good news, but if the end goal is not not just converts, but actual disciples, then we've missed it. And so this goes into everything. Social projects, all of that. Those things are all fantastic. But if we are missing the true purpose of evangelism and outreach, is discipleship, then we have missed the mark, okay? So if you're like me, I'm very analytical. And so when I see something written in scripture, something that has been intentionally placed there, I want to know why. I want to know the why behind the why. Why was this chosen? For instance, Matthew's first words in the Gospel of Matthew are incredibly important. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Summarizes almost his entire mission statement, right? Well, if these are literally the last words that Matthew has so intentionally put at the last end of his book, we need to wonder why. These are the last things that Matthew is saying about the Lamb of God. We need to wonder why. Why is this so important to him? So I wanna drive this, this point home in another, another passage. So if you would, go with me. Uh, you know, at Luke 15, 11 through 24, So um, again, I'm gonna keep y'all on the bread and butter today. I'm not gonna take y'all to Leviticus or anything. Um, So we're all familiar with it, the story of the prodigal son, prodigal God, elder brother, whatever you wanna call it. Uh, It's a really beautiful story, and there's a lot of different things we can take out of it, but possibly more than any other passage in the New Testament, it captures the essence of who God is and what his heart is. So let's dive in. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, "'Father, give me my share of the estate.' So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs." He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. All right, okay, so let's start back at the beginning here. So what we need to understand when we are this far removed, we need to kind of bridge the gap a little bit. So let's step into first century Israel, first century Middle East, extremely honor-bound society, extremely patriarchy. So what the son does essentially is says to the father, I want your inheritance, but I don't want you. I want the things that you have, but I don't care to have a relationship with you. And so what does he do? He leaves. So this would have dishonored the father to no end. This is something that sons did not do. And if anything, to put it in context even further, in Deuteronomy, you are given permission to kill a son who's living wildly. That's how honor bound this society was. So this was like, this was the worst thing you could do. But... We see that he gets, he falls into a horrible place, but our story really picks up when he comes back. And see, when he's gone, he's created distance from the father. He has cut off intimacy. He has cut off relationship because we're told he goes to a foreign land. He is no longer in proximity to his father. He can't have a relationship with him at that distance. But when he comes back, we see the father's heart. And so what we notice initially, is that it says, when the son was a long way off, the father saw him. What does that imply? That implies that the entire time his son was away, he was looking for him. He was waiting on his son to come home. And why is that? Because if we can understand that, then we can probably help to understand God a little bit better. So I don't know if you guys ever think about this, um, but I sometimes like, especially when I was uh, maybe just Curious about Christianity, or was just maybe a little spiritually curious. I wonder why, why. Why is anything here? Why is something here as opposed to nothing at all? Like it's a pretty big question. Why did God choose to create in the first place? And so the reality is, if we can understand this, then we can understand the lens of the entire Bible, and we can understand the lens of the entire life. But if we miss it, then we're going to miss the entire Bible and we're gonna miss all of life. And the reality is, is that God is a lovesick lover and he craves relationship with you and I. He didn't create us so that we could love him because he was missing something. And parents, you understand this. You hopefully did not have kids that way they could love you and fill a void in you, right? You had kids because you wanted to love them. It's the exact same with God. And so what we see here is God standing on that front porch waiting for his son to come home because he wants to love him. God's essence is love. He is not up in heaven, scowling down at us, just so mad and angry. Although sometimes that can happen, but his heart is for love. He wants to love each and every one of us in a close relationship. And so when he sees that, he's overjoyed. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that this is such an honor society. Well, he would have never ran Back in the day, fathers did not run. That was considered beneath them. They were not about that, but he doesn't care. He breaks the rules of normality, as Dante Bo says, and he takes off towards his son. He is so overjoyed to see him. And when he sees him, he welcomes him right back into his family. He puts the ring on him. He gives him the best robe. He puts the sandals on and he slaughters the fattened calf all because he is so happy have relationship. And that is why it is not simply good enough to create converts. It is not simply good enough to go out and do, pick up trash, uh, you know, beautify our parks. Although all those things are fine. Father's heart is so much bigger and it's so much deeper than that because he wants intimacy. He wants that. He craves it from us. He wants it. And so now that we understand, okay, Why evangelism? Well, he told us to. God, it wasn't a suggestion. I don't know if you guys paid attention in Matthew 28. Wasn't a suggestion. That was a command. He says, if you love him, you'll obey my commands. It's a good benchmark. So we understand the why, but the why behind the why is because he wants relationship. Okay? Now, if that's the case and he wants relationship, next question is, where do we start? I think that's where we should go next. So um, we start where we have the largest sphere of influence okay? Mother Teresa said it like this. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family, all right? Because if we can't start at home where we have so much influence, parents, hear me, you are the number one primary influence in your kid's life until they leave the house, okay? Number one. That also means you are the number one form of discipleship for your kid. And so, Before we dive into what that looks like, I wanna offer a word of warning because I love the the blessings and all that. Those are, I like those a whole lot more than the woes, but the Bible's full of just as many woes, if not more woes and warning than it is blessing. So if we don't conceptualize and take to heart the warning, we can really miss it. So uh, 75 to 90%, 75 to 90%, pretty big number. It's not a little bit, it's not half, it is the overarching majority, okay? If you, if you had a business and you had a nine, 90% uh, margin on a product you were selling, I, I mean, I'm not a business guy, I think it sounds good, I don't know, but uh, let's, let's turn that around. If your business was failing, you wouldn't use that model, okay? So 75 to 90% of students walk away from Christianity one year into college. One year. Again, if that was a business model, we would throw it out the window. And so as a youth pastor, I can take some responsibility for this, okay? I, I, genuinely, like I can look around, I can look around at some of the youth groups, and I really hope this isn't the case here, but I understand I definitely have blind spots and there's probably flaws within our youth group that I don't see, but I can look around at other youth groups and realize that they put more emphasis on fun than they do on teaching your kids scripture and about God. I don't want that to be the case here. And so I can take responsibility because I'm sure I've had shortcomings in my time here. But if we're really honest, and I don't mean this in a condemning or judgmental way, I mean this from a loving perspective. That means, that means it's failing at home, 100%. We're, we're fighting the tide. I'm not sure if you guys have looked at culture lately, but culture is as antithetical as it can get to the gospel right now. I'm literally, I'm only 28, but I have seen how much culture has changed just within the last 10 or 15 years. It is insane at the progress it's going, and it's, on, it's only going to get worse. I hate to say that, but it's only going to get worse here. Um, and so with that being said, please hear me. If you are not discipling your kids, that is your first point of evangelism, then we're missing it. And I I tell you, the culture is so pervasive right now that uh, it's it's really hard. And so if you're not pouring into your kids, somebody else will. What that looks like, 75 to 90%, 5% of all of American society identifies as atheist or agnostic. We all know it, asymptomatic means you have no symptoms. So atheist, A opposite, Theo, God, atheist, no God. Agnostic, A, opposite. Gnostic, knowledge. I don't have knowledge of God. 5% of society identifies as that. Guess what it is in public universities all across America? 50%. If you think that your kids are not, your kids are being discipled, but it's either by us or it's by out there. And I tell you, I'd much rather have your kids be discipled by in here and you guys than out there because we're seeing the results and the results are bad. So they're being discipled one way or another. But the reality is, is that you guys have so much influence, you can disciple them. And look at this. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. This is the most prayed prayer of all time. It's called the Shema. Jesus would have prayed it twice a day. Let me give you some quick context. So this book is written on the tail end of Moses' life, okay? He's only got a few days to live at this point. God has already told him he's not going into the promised land because he disobeyed. And so he is repeating the past 40 years that he's had with God and with the Israelite people. He's repeating the most important things. And we actually see that in the name of the book. Deuteronomy is broken into two words. Deutero, second. Nomos, law, second law. Moses is intentionally repeating the most important things that he was given in revelation by God. And so that's where we dive in. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And so as I said, parents, you you are the primary means of discipleship. That is where you have the greatest influence in your life. And so I'm sure all of you remember what it was like to to be a kid. Um, I had an awesome mom. She loved me so well. I was such, I was, yeah, she's laughing because she knows. Uh, I was, I was an only child and I wasn't just an only child. I was a really bratty only child. So she loved me through all that. But um, mom was awesome. But dad, dad was like, man, who, who, what little boy, if they have a dad that's worth anything, what little boy doesn't just look up to their dad like he hung the moon? He is so awesome and he's so cool. And you know, he gets home from work and you hear that door open up and you're like, oh, there he is, it's time to go. You know it's time to wrestle when he gets home and you're a little kid and you test your strength against him and you brush up against him. And I called my dad's beard ants. They felt like little ants when I felt them. And it was the best thing ever, right? Like if you had a dad who was good, you loved being around your dad. And so one of the things I remember about my dad, uh, I went to school at Kennesaw Elementary, go Generals, and uh, I was in second grade in Miss Turner's class. And one of the things we did in this class is we did journals. I would write something. Um, my parents would write back to me. And uh, most of the time, my mom would write in print, but sometimes she'd forget, and she wrote in cursive. And so it's like she didn't write anything to me at all. <laughs> but my dad, my dad would write back to me too, And my dad had, you know, in second grade, like, your handwriting is all over the place. Like, if you can read what you're writing, you're doing pretty good. You got one line to write something, but you take two, and it's just real rough. But my dad had this handwriting, still does, that is very small, and it's very fine, it's very concise, and it's very clean. And I remember as a second grader being like, I like that handwriting. Like, that looks good. I like the clean cut about that. I can dig it. And so as a 28-year-old, I still look at my handwriting and say, man, now it's starting to look like my dad's, and I like that. That looks good. And so, you know, our parents give us stuff to emulate. We look up to our parents so much. Still today, whenever I throw the window down in the car, which we always did, I love having the windows down. You know how my dad used to ride down the car? He'd obviously be driving and he'd have that arm hanging out the window, right on the window seal. So guess how I still drive today when I roll the window down? That arm goes right out the window seal because that's, that's what my dad did. And I still have that ingrained in me to be like my dad. And so with that in mind, if our kids naturally wanna emulate us, let's give them something to emulate, okay? The command here is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, and all your strength. What if... For instance, as followers of Jesus, and I've heard it said like this, let your kids catch you praying or let your kids catch you reading your Bible. And that's awesome. I really do like that. We're not parents yet, but I really look forward to the day that we have a little boy or a little girl and they just catch me in my free time reading the Bible. They just catch me in my free time praising. They catch me in my free time uh, praying. I look forward to that. I really, really do. But what if it's bigger Than being caught, because discipleship is not just about like discipleship is not just about modeling. It is in some parts, but discipleship is also remember it's about that relationship. So what if it's bigger? What if it's bigger than just getting caught reading your Bible? What if it's bigger than just getting caught praying? What if it's oh no, come here, buddy. Yeah, no, I'm I'm gonna pray with you. Yeah, this is this is this is why we pray. This is this book, this is, the, this is the manual for life. This is, this is who wrote it, this is who, what they say about you. And this is, you can live better if you just listen to this. I look forward to that. I don't want my kids just to catch me, I wanna do it alongside them. And so as parents, we have to emulate this behavior. And honestly, if we're lukewarm, guess what? Our kids are probably gonna be lukewarm. If we are not following him, guess what? our kids probably aren't gonna follow him because we haven't shown them why it's so important. When we become parents, I want our kids to look at our lives and say, oh my gosh, God's hand is all over this. There's no way I can't believe in this God. I've seen his spirit move so powerfully in our home and in our lives that they're just head over heels in love with him. That's what I want. And I really believe that's what y'all want too. And so if that's our softball, that's a softball. That's, we have a sphere of influence there. That's, that's pretty easy. Your kids really can't get out from under you until you're 18, right? So that's softball. Okay, what's maybe a curveball or a slider that's maybe something a little bit different that's gonna take more intentionality? Okay, um, and I, I would say that's evangelism and discipleship between adults. That's a little bit different, okay? It's, not, it, it's similar, but not the same. And let me just be really honest with you guys. If you guys know my story, you know I have not been a Christian a long time. Uh, matter of fact, I haven't even been a Christian three years. I forget what it is at this point, but I, I have not been a Christian for three years. Most of my life, I grew up as that 5%. I would have told you I was an atheist or I was an agnostic, okay? So with that in mind, I'm fairly new to the church. Uh, I grew up in church, um, but I really prodigaled, if that's a verb, I prodigaled hard um, from about middle school to, uh, when I was like 24, I was pretty rough. And so I wasn't around church culture all that much. And so as I'm getting used to church culture and really planted here, uh, I'm hearing, I'm hearing things really for the first time. And so let me just, again, let me give a word of warning. I've heard things said in this church, like, Oh, I'm, I'm just more of an inside the walls person. I'm not big on evangelism. I'm more of an inside the walls or let me put it to you like this. I actually spoke with a parent who had a student here and I said, I'm gonna go get the lost kids. I'm gonna go to the kids that uh, that have no idea who they are and I'm gonna get them and I'm gonna bring them here because this is a hospital and not a museum. And uh, they, they say, don't get too many. If that is the attitude that we take, then we have missed the entire gospel message. I'm so serious right now. And it breaks my heart that that is where Some of us, again, I've fallen into this trap. And perfect example, the Pharisees fell into this trap. I'm not sure if you've read how Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he was not a fan. See, the Pharisees' literal name, it literally means separatist. They wanted nothing to do with the lost. But Jesus' whole mission was to seek and save the lost, Luke 19, 10. And if we miss that, we have missed everything because each and every single one of us at some point, even if you grew up in a Christian home, you were lost because you inherited Adam's sinful nature. You were not born a Christian, nobody is. And so somebody had to disciple you and I hope that gratitude overflows into discipling and reaching those who have no idea. And so let me tell you what this practically looks like. Uh, We just got done with our men's retreat. It was an awesome, awesome time. I got to beat up on poor Craig and Mike the entire time. Uh, They may need a sozo, they may need prayer. If they come up, don't judge them. Um, No, I'm just kidding, they they gave me the what for. Um, But we had a great time. I was one of the last people here cleaning up. There was three of us left. We'd done a, they'd done an awesome job cleaning up and uh, it was just us. And I was by myself. I was just doing kind of small tasks that I just saw here and there. And I'm walking in this back hallway and I look over just behind the mulch piles over here and I see a fire. And what you need to know about me, I used to be a firefighter. I was in the fire service for four years. I I think everybody, if they're honest, really enjoys starting fire. I think, I really do. Like, okay, I got to know over here, but most of us, most of us enjoy starting fire. Okay. But I also really enjoy putting out fire. Like, it was fun for me to go put out fires. And so I see this, and it's going. Like, this is not like I see a little ember. Like, no, the woods back there are going, and I'm like, huh. I mean, like, what in the world? Like, I was not expecting this. And so it's to the point where I don't know if I need to call 911. And I have that just split second debate with myself. And it's like, do I call 911 or do I go handle it? I'm like, all right, I'll go handle it. Let's do this. And so I take off. I know just because I'm always, I still see from a fire marshal perspective and a firefighter perspective, I notice where fire extinguishers are. So I turn around, I grab one. I know where that one is. But here's the funny thing. I was a firefighter for three years, fire marshal for one year. And all that time, I had never used a fire extinguisher. (laughs) I had, I can, I've used all kinds of different hose lines, I have uh, shot water off the top of a fire truck, I can tell you pump discharge pressures, uh, flow paths. I can tell you about how many sprinkler heads we're supposed to have in this space, egress capacity through those doors, but I had no idea what a fire extinguisher was actually capable of. So I grab one and I'm like, you never know, grab a second. So I go and grab the second one and I'm taking off down there. I'm feeling good, the adrenaline's pumping. I see the other guys, I'm like, hey, y'all need to go get other fire extinguishers because I don't know how this is about to go down. And so I get down there and uh, you know, pass, pull, aim, squeeze, sweep. There you go, that's free. And uh, I do that. And it just demolishes this fire. I'm like, okay, I'm pretty impressed. And, uh, you know, we put it out. I got my money's worth out of man camp just for that. It was it was good. It made my day. Um, but it, what's funny is the guy who started it actually said afterwards, he said, I just gave you sermon material for Sunday, didn't I? And I was like, yeah, you did. And uh, what I think... What I think this can represent for us, as we try to understand what evangelism looks like to the lost, is more often than not we see that fire. We see somebody who's lost, and we want no part of it. We, as Christians, obviously, if that fire represents perhaps like a, um, like um, you know, the opposite of peace. If it if it represents chaos, if it represents sin, if it represents those things. We as Christians are supposed to be just, it's the opposite, right? We're supposed to be tranquil. We're supposed to be calm. They're to, we should have an inner peace about us because we have the Spirit of the living God inside us. So there can be fire all around us, but inside, it's, it should be peace, right? But when we see peace and we see it manifested in people's lives more often than not, we we'll look the other way. We we'll say, eh no, I got burned. I got burned one time. We say, I don't want anything to do with that. That's not for me. And so that's what we do. We shun our noses and we turn around and say, I don't want anything to do with that. Hmm. But what we don't realize, I don't know if you guys are, I guess this is maybe agriculture. I don't know if you guys are up on your agriculture But where a fire burns, farmers will actually do this. They will light parts of their fields on fires on a rotating basis because where a fire burns, then the soil has the potential to come back greener than ever, okay? So if the soil has the potential to come back greener forever, we don't need to see it as a fire. We need to see it as an opportunity to partner with God and see what he can do in this person because it's not up to us. So let me give you an example of what uh, evangelism and discipleship looks like between adults, we're in First Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8. And so, real quick context, uh, Paul, Thessal- Paul goes to Thessalonica. He offers himself as their discipleship tool. And so, um, it's a beautiful letter, and he, he even alludes to this more, but for time's sake, I just wanted to focus on this one passage. So, First Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we, Paul, cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So um, you can see the intentionality that Paul describes, okay? So the reality of our evangelism, like Paul evangelized to Thessalonica, is that we have to be intentional, we have to be purposeful, we have to be loving, and we have to be self-sacrificial. We not only have to share the gospel, but we have to share ourselves, what Paul says. And so I, I think if we're honest, again, first reaction to hearing getting close to the fire, getting close to those that are lost, is that uh, we're like, oof, I don't want any of that sin to get on me. I can't have any of that. But I know that sounds scary. I really do. Um, I understand that. Let me ask you something. Why was, I not, why was I not afraid to go fight that fire? I was not going down there by myself. I could try my best, you know, do a little, put the Cupid Shuffle on and just try and stomp it out the best I could. I could A-Town stomp it, whatever. That's probably not gonna work, right? So I went down there with fire extinguishers. I didn't go down there by myself. I did not go under my own power. The reality is for us as Christians, as we engage in evangelism outreach discipleship, we are not going by ourselves. And if we return to Matthew real quick, I think there's a promise that's there, but it gets even more, it gets more beautiful if you peel back the layer a little bit. So if you wouldn't mind, throw Matthew 28, 20 back on the screen. So again, I talked about, um, I talked about the fact that Matthew structures his gospel in such a, a beautiful way. When you really dive into any of the books of the Bible, you would expect a book that had God's hand in it to be just absolutely beautiful, both in just a a plain reading, but once you dive into it. And so Matthew employs a literary technique that I know Matthew, Mark, and John use. I'm not 100% on Luke, but this literary technique is called inclusio. And so the idea behind this technique that Matthew employs is that in Matthew 1.23, he ascribes Jesus' name, Emmanuel, and that means God with us. He calls Jesus Emmanuel and the first, part, the first book of his Bible. So very early on, okay? Now, what he's done is he has placed Emmanuel in this passage as well. We can't see it in the English. Sometimes, now don't get me wrong. We have very good translations, but sometimes we miss the beauty of the original language. Right here is a perfect example. And surely I am with you always. And surely Emmanuel. So what he is doing is he is promising to be with us to the end of the days. And he, he emphasizes this so strongly. He uses this literary, this literary method, inclusio. On the front end, Emmanuel. Back end, Emmanuel. Why did he do this? He's trying to tell us, each and every one of us, that when the entire scope of his book is looked at, that is the overarching theme. That's why, that's why writers in the ancient times would do that because they wanted to emphasize how important this theme or idea was to the readers. And so the promise of God for us today is that when we go out, when we go out and we participate in evangelism, we participate in outreach, we participate in, and reaching the lost, when we live our lives, he is with us, that's a promise. It's embedded in this command, but it's a promise nonetheless. So the reality is, each and every one of you, as soon as you accepted Jesus into your life, the Holy Spirit started dwelling in you. I don't know about you, but that's the king of the universe, and I got nothing to worry about if the Holy Spirit lives in me. I can't be touched, I'm sealed, signed, and delivered. And so the reality is for us, is we have nothing to fear. And if anything, we need to adopt his posture towards the lost. Let's pray. God, I pray that today, um, we would, our eyes would be opened to who you are and what your heart is for the lost. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So I pray today, we would not leave as church attenders. We would not leave as Christians that just come on Sundays, but I pray that we would be Christians in every facet of our life. I pray that we would have the same heart for discipleship that you have. I pray that we would have the same heart of evangelism in reaching the loss that you do. We would be as uh, We would have our faces set like uh, stone towards this. And I pray that you would continue to give us increased revelation on how important this is. I pray that you would calm fears. I pray that you would embolden and people would take the first step towards reaching the lost. If they never have, that they would know that you are with them always to the end of the age. Amen. So... um. We're gonna launch into a time of prayer. I'd invite our prayer teams up here. So on this side, we're gonna have people uh, with masks. On this side, we'll have those without masks. We'd love to pray for you. There's nothing better than we can do than to partner with God and pray with him and ask him to partner with us. Um, Let me make a quick announcement. Uh, Easter's coming up, it's right around the corner. We have cards, Uh, we have cards, at the Welcome Center, where MJ is gonna be, as well as if you're a first-time guest, we'd love to connect with you, get to know more about you, and those cards are also out in the the main lobby with MJ. Um, Additionally, if there's anybody here who can stay after for a few minutes, we gotta get ready for Born Again Blessings, and that means we have to stack the chairs on this side of the room and on that side. And so if anybody could help with stacking chairs, if you could, just meet me up front, and I'll give you a little bit further directions. So um, we'd love to pray for you guys. You guys are awesome. I'm super grateful for y'all.